Oscar Combs here, and I want to put one rumor to rest, once and for all. The story is that Rafferty's goes all out for sports fans. And let me tell you, it's absolutely true. Confirmed. And fans love Rafferty's right back because the food is so terrific. Serve fresh. Serve fast. Serve friendly. Lunch or dinner. Rafferty's menu is jam-packed with all your favorites. Steaks, prime rib, chicken, ribs, delicious dishes and generous sizes that really satisfy the appetite. So come hang with the sports crowd at Rafferty's. It's the tastiest place in town. Welcome to Conversations with Oscar Combs. Odds are you know somebody named Kyle. Odds are that person was born in the late 70s and early 80s. Odds are that person was named after Kyle Macy. One of the most beloved Wildcats of our time, Kyle Macy proved to everybody he could do it all. From being Mr. Basketball in Indiana to a national champion at Kentucky, All-American Awards, playing in the NBA, being a high school tennis coach, broadcaster, and now an assistant at Transylvania. Oh yeah, and there's that free throw thing too. Kyle Macy has carved out a special place in the hearts of Big Blue Nation. This is Conversations with Oscar Combs. Ow. Oscar. It's been 40 years. No, it hasn't. Since you set foot at Mike's. <laughs> yes, it has. We met over there on Tate's Creek. In the, what was it, a Burger King back then? It was a Burger Queen. Burger Queen, right. Burger Queen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you moved down here after spending a year at Purdue. Let's get about into the recruiting a little bit. Kentucky recruited you at a high school. Purdue did. Who else was in the mix at that time? Oh, just about every school in the country seemed like. Um, on my visits, I went to Cincinnati for a visit, UCLA, Kentucky, and then uh, Purdue. Indiana? No, I didn't really visit them. They they had um, five guards with Buckner, Wilkerson, Wisman, and Cruz, and then they signed Bob Bender the first day. And I didn't want to wait till I was a junior to get a chance to play. Who was the coach at that time? Guy by the name of Bobby Knight, which um, later on, I mean, he was nice later on. I played for him in the Pan Am games, and he was nice enough to say, and whether he meant it or not, you'll never know, but it was nice enough to say that, you know, had I to do it over again, I would have recruited you harder. Because he really didn't recruit me that hard. I, my sister graduated, was a graduate of IU, and so I knew the campus. I'd go down once in a while and spend a weekend with her. Uh, but they didn't come after me very hard. And, again, like I said, I, I wanted to play before I was a junior. When it came down to the end, uh, the things that we were here here in Lexington, Kentucky, we recruited you as their number one guard prospect, and I think Truman Clater number two, and they got a little anxious they might strike out on both. How, how did that finally? Well, to start out with, I, w- I was real late in deciding. I mean, I'll, I'll take credit for that or the fault <laughs> or whatever you want to call it, but I, I was very late in deciding. I didn't want to talk to any of the colleges until after my senior year was over, which is completely different than now. Now they're ready to commit at seventh grade or even younger. Um, but I wanted to focus my entire focus on my senior year and have the best year I could. So my dad being my coach, uh, it, it worked out very well and that they would talk to him. And he, he you know, you knew my father. He yeah. loved to talk to coaches and talk basketball and, and just about anything. So uh, he kind of was a filter until the season was over. So that probably put me a little bit behind in the whole process. Um, but, yeah, it came down basically for me, Purdue, which I probably was feeling some pressure to stay in state. It was only about an hour from my home, and Kentucky. And, um, you know, Kentucky was coming off a final two appearance, uh, John Wooden's last game. 
So, you know, probably some doubts in my mind whether I could play at that level, uh, being from a small town in Indiana. Um, I can't believe Kyle Macy not having the kind of uh, ego and uh, <laughs> <laughs> that he could play anywhere. Well, yeah, well, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, that's pretty impressive to be in the NCAA championship game and probably should have won, but that's another old story. But um, so it came down to those two, and Coach Hall um, had done the official visit. I'd made, uh, I came down actually as a junior and watched Kentucky play Tennessee in an unofficial visit, came back for an official visit. Um, Roby got stuck going up Rose Hill, uh, the, the little hill there on Rose. Uh, drive there through campus and made me get out and push and I, I tell him to this day that's why I didn't come down here the first time <laughs> so so you went to Purdue one year and I think you were Big Ten freshman of the year but yeah didn't you have a coaching change in there somewhere along the line no no what what happened was so anyways it came down to Kentucky and Purdue and Joe B said he needed to know he, he needed to sign one more guard and he had a chance to get another guy they wanted me if I would sign but if not they were going to go ahead I, they needed to know and this was May I remember I didn't commit till Mother's Day so I mean it was late and so I told him I wasn't quite ready yet because I, I really wasn't. So the decision kind of made itself. They, they picked up Truman Clater, who, you know, obviously later I played with mm-hmm. and uh, worked out. But, yeah, when I went then to Purdue, um, I, I had real good inter-squad scrimmages, whatever, and played like I thought they thought I was going to play. But then the season started, and I wasn't getting any time at all. And had not Bruce Parkinson, whose father was an All-American here, um, broken his wrist – I probably wouldn't have played much at all that freshman season. Um, but because he broke his wrist, I was thrown into the starting position. I think my first game at West Virginia had 20-some points. Uh, had 38 in a double overtime game, my first Big Ten game up in Minnesota. And then from then on, I kind of didn't see the ball. Um, but, no, there was no coaching change. So you, you come to Kentucky after that year, and you set out, and that's the 76-77 year that Kentucky went to the regional finals, lost to the Four Corners and College right. Park. Were you able to go to those games as a, as a uh, uh, sitting it out? I um, know you couldn't play, but could you travel or not? I couldn't travel with the team. I could go, but uh-huh. I couldn't travel with the team. So I went to some of them on the road. And it, it was kind of nice to kind of get a – that, that whole year, in hindsight, was really good because it gave me the opportunity to kind of get a feel for everything, whether it was just walking around the upper corridors or up because nobody really knew me. Or going on the road and see the hatred for Kentucky and, and <laughs> know what, what to expect the following year. What, what was it like when you started coming to the games? Because that was an initial opening of Rupp Arena, too. That was yeah. the first year I first was year. open. Yeah, it, it was pretty amazing. I mean, I, I just sat down on the end of the bench by Walt McCombs and uh, watched the games, trying to pick out things that, you know, maybe how I could help, what I could do, or what we as a team should be trying to do. And the good thing was I could practice against the team every day. And so – that was huge for me. I, I, I was about 155, maybe 160 pounds when I came down here soaking wet. And so Coach Hall's training program, his weightlifting program, playing every day in practice against Larry Johnson, who was you know super strong, super quick, uh, real good defensive player. So it, it made me a lot better player just that other year of maturity as well. Coming to Kentucky, you, you grew up in a coach's family. I guess you was a gym rat pretty much all your life. <laughs> Played for your father. Uh Kentucky, over the years, have had father-son combinations. You've had uh, Tubby and uh, Saul. You even had Adolph and Herky. You had Eddie and Sean. And now you've got Coach Cal and Brad. Coming from uh, a kid who played for his dad, 
What's that like, and what kind of advice would you give to Brad as he enters his first year here at Kentucky? Well, for me, it was a great experience. And I've kind of said all along, having gone through it, that you either want to be the best player on your team or the worst. Uh, because if you're in the middle, then sometimes you're going to struggle in games and people think, well, the only reason he's playing is because he's the coach's son. If you're the best player, then they know why you're playing because you're the best player out there. If you're the worst player, then you probably are only getting in when the, it's a 30-point game, whatever, and everybody's fine with that. Um, but for me, it was great. I, I was the best player on our team. And, um, you know, you talk about or you hear about leaving it at the gym. Well, that, that really wasn't the case um, because – my father spent so much time with me just even when I was younger growing up. I'd go with him when he was coaching college and recruiting trips, and we just had a great relationship. But he would come home, and I'd, I'd talk to him about what I didn't think I liked at practice. He'd tell me what he didn't like to practice or what you know how we could improve. My mother a lot of times probably had to wear the referee's jersey at dinner just to kind of – we didn't really argue, but we had some discussions. And so, it, But it was, a, it was a great experience for me. Coming into Kentucky, you setting out that first year, and like you said, learning and, and observing. Did you feel like maybe at the end of the year that had you been here the two years before that, you might have been able to make a difference in that game against North Carolina? I don't know. Um, you know, I, my ego is not so much that I, I think, Dev, oh, yeah, we would won that for sure. Yeah. But, you know, it, it was it just it is what it is. It worked out great. Um, personally for me, and I, and I think it worked out well for everybody. I mean, because you learn from your losses, and I think those seniors really learned a lot, uh, not just that game, but their entire experience up to the senior year in 78 when we went on and won the, won the championship. So um, I, don't, I don't know if I'd have been ready to, to make that much of an impact that I was able to do the following year just by being that much stronger and that much more experienced. Uh, two years ago, Kentucky was going for the so-called proverbial perfect season 40 and 0 and there's a lot of pressure from day one you guys sort of kind of experienced that same thing in 78 even though you didn't go 40 and 0 you you lost two games but everybody was expecting a title from october the 15th on right i agree they were <laughs> it's you know you it is it's kind of what you make it though i mean uh, the expectations and the one thing, I never really had a problem with that as a player because I don't think anybody from a fan standpoint had any higher expectations of what they wanted to see from me than myself. I, I expected myself to go out there and perform at my best level every time, and, and that's the effort I tried to put forth every time. So I didn't really worry about what everybody else thought, how I was playing, because I, I kind of knew if, if I played as well as I thought I was capable, then good things were going to happen. And, and I think the entire team understood that. So – yeah, there's a lot of talk years after, and even that time, Coach Hall about the pressure and how you know it's just a relief when we won. I, I don't, I don't really buy into that much because I think it's it's you know it's an opportunity, and you, you you'd love to have those opportunities and experience and be successful, and that just adds to the the success and the joy of of what you're experiencing. So I had a little different take on that. I, I know early on in the season, going into y'all basically beating up on everybody pretty good. And then you had a little stumble twice. Right. At, at Tuscaloosa, where Kentucky, throughout that era, had great – because Alabama had some great teams back then. Yeah, they did. And then there was that one trip well, into Baton Rouge and then Oxford. Yeah. <laughs> and that every year was the same trip, LSU-Oxford, which, you know, we'd always sometimes struggle down at LSU because Dale Brown was doing a good job reviving that program. And they, they had their goals every year to beat Kentucky. 
And then we'd go to Oxford, and it was like a uh, turnstile there at the scores <laughs> table. Anytime I think there you... were 27 substitutions in the first half. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go back into going down there in, into LSU. I mean, well, first let's go to Alabama where we lost okay. our first game. Yeah. Well, you know, it's I'm going to make a few excuses here, but I, it's my my theory. <laughs> we had they had that old tartan floor, which is really hard on the legs if you're on it a lot. And and Coach Hall, I don't know if he was feeling the pressure or what his reasoning was, but. The night before the game, we went in Tuscaloosa and practiced late in the gym, and we went a good two hours, and it was a hard practice. And I think we were just kind of dead-legged the next day. We were about a – not just a step slow, but about a step and a half. And, you know, we lost – I think the final was maybe 16 points. So it wasn't really close. But I think, you know, I'm, I'm blaming Coach Hall for that first loss. But he may have wanted to have that under his belt just to say, you know – Get that did pressure that, off. Did that relieve a little bit of pressure with the unbeaten streak? No, I, th- I think as a player we were disappointed because we, we liked, you know, being number one and being undefeated. Then you come back and got on a pretty good streak, and then you made that yeah. trip into Baton Rouge. And uh, they were pretty good. And he he's uh, Dale always was a master motivator. He was. And, you know, they talk about, oh, all five of their starters fouled out. But they never say, well, three of our starters fouled out as well. It was a kind of a free throw shooting game. I think that's the only game in my college career that I, I fouled out as well. So, um, but yeah, it was it was a battle. I remember getting on the team plane uh, the next day. We stayed overnight, I think, that night, and we flew into uh, Memphis and bus down to Oxford. Yeah. And on one on the bus, uh, Joe B gave a couple statements uh, to one of the sports writers, the Courier Journal, that uh, I think the quote was "Givens and Roby are gutless." Was the headlines and. Uh, uh, as always, when we played in Oxford, there are a lot of people in Western Kentucky would come down and stay at the Holiday Inn where we stayed at. Right. Well, most of the fans in the arena were from, from Kentucky yeah. or Kentucky fans. And, and the morning of, Monday morning, you had the Sunday shoot-around, and Monday morning they came in and they had these courier journals with Roby Gibbons, Gutless. And, and then I'll take you back the day before. I think you were getting ready to go to practice. And I think it was LaVon Williams and maybe Dwayne Casey and Freddie Freddie Cowles, yeah. And uh, I was on the bus, too, at the time. And uh, they were coming out of – they watched a movie or something on TV, and it looked down, and it was actually like two minutes to one and one we were supposed to leave. And they're maybe 50 feet away. (laughs) And Joe tells the driver, shut the damn door. Let's go, yeah. Let's go. And the driver said, well, they're coming. He said, I said, shut the damn door. And I think D.G. Fishmore got them to beat the thing right. there. But, I mean, that was just yeah. the tightness of they it. They actually beat us to the gym, which is because of Fitzmorris, who was a sports writer then. Yeah. yeah, gave him a ride over to the gym. So they got there actually before the bus. But, you know, the saying was, Coach Hall, if you're on time, you're late. So you got to be there five, ten minutes early. And those guys were cutting it close. So, again, maybe just, you know, because not only was Dale Brown a good motivator, Coach Hall had some some things he could do to kind of motivate you as well. Well, now, did, did, did everything really start to come together that weekend, even though there was a loss and the thing there to refocus on? Well, I, I think the gauntlet was put down or the challenge. And, you know, another term he used, I think, during that weekend was the folding five. Yes. Uh, <laughs> if you remember that one. <laughs> so um, those seniors had a lot of pride. And I think it, it kind of maybe just refocused the needles to true north. Because uh, when you have some success, it's easy sometimes to kind of get a little bit off center and, and get distracted. So that, that I probably did give us the refocus to finish the year and win the championship. I guess the only little stumbling block or mini stumbling block the rest of the year going into the tournament was maybe the first game of the tournament down in Knoxville. 
Yeah, and that was probably um, – that's not unusual, though, I don't think, for a team that's highly rated to play their first game and, and um, a team that really has nothing to lose come out and play loose and making shots and doing things. So Coach Hall made that big move at halftime that, you know, maybe could have cost him his job had we lost. But uh, And that move was? He took out uh, three of the starters. Um, I, fortunately for me, I was one that got to start the second half, and I think maybe Mike Phillips was the other one. And uh, he didn't he didn't keep that substitution in long, but just enough to kind of get their attention. He was going for that shot treatment. So when Jack and Rick and uh, Truman came back in, then uh, we started playing like we were capable and then got on a roll. And, and let's jump on up to Dayton where the big game was at. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the nice thing about that entire tournament, as you look back, was each game a different player really played the big role in the game. It wasn't like one guy – you know, carried the entire team. And that was kind of fitting of that team. It was there's so much versatility and so many different options that we could do. And so that, you know, the first game, Florida State, it was kind of a team thing. Uh, Mike and Truman, who were both from Ohio, the, the next game against Miami of Ohio had big games. Michigan State, I was able to make some shots down the stretch and was able to help that win. Uh, and then the semifinal and final game, you know, Roby had big games in the final. Givens had an unbelievable game in the final. And and uh, so, you know, it was we, – we had some substitutions that really stepped up in the, the semifinal game against Arkansas. Um, but, yeah, Dayton was great. Um, you know, Michigan State with Magic Johnson and Greg Kelser, they played that matchup zone. And uh, first half, you know, it, it kind of stymied us. It was a really low-scoring game. And uh, we went into halftime and talked and came back out. And, and I remember Coach and Leonard Hamilton grabbed Rick Roby and I and brought us over to the bench right before we threw it up to start the second half and said – Rick, you come up and set this pick, and Kyle, you come off, and you'll either have Jack in the corner or Michael roll down the baseline, or you'll have a shot. And so we did it, and, uh, you know, I, like I said, I was got maybe 11 free throws or something during the course of the game just by doing that. Either they weren't going to take me or they, they'd foul me, you know, from trying from behind coming off that pick by Roby, so it worked out great. So you get into the championship game, and um, he writes 40 minutes to glory on the board. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was tough getting the championship game because that semifinal game I thought was one of our toughest ones. I mean, they had the triplets with Sidney Moncrief, uh, Ron Brewer, and Marvin Delf, who uh, all played professionally, real good players. And it, it came down to the end. We got a uh, over-the-top against their press. We call it, had a play called Rick. Called it three times, actually, Rick, Rick, Rick. <laughs> and uh, where the Jack would come over like he's going to pick and slip it and just take off and bring the – big guys up down the floor so there's nobody in the backside. And I threw a lob over the top. Some think that Jack traveled on the play, but he got it and laid it in. So it gave us kind of a four-point cushion as time was running out. And that that was really the game because it was neck and neck until then. We were in some foul trouble, and they were a good team as well. And what was it like after the game and then the trip back to Lexington? Yeah, you know, it was funny because uh, Coach Hall uh, said, you know, let's let's just go back and get some pizza and relax and just enjoy the victory. And, you know, the seniors looking at him like, he's lost his mind. We've come this far. We're not going to just go back and relax and goof off. So it was Roby said, Coach, do you have a film of that first game with uh, Notre Dame and uh, Duke? And he said, we'd like to, you know, go back to the hotel, get some food or whatever, bring it in, but let's watch the film and get right after it. So we didn't really – wasn't like everybody was jumping up and down. I mean, we were still very focused and had a goal in mind. It wasn't like we weren't enjoying it, but we were definitely not done with what we'd come there for. And then you won the final game against Duke before Duke become the Duke of the next 30 years. <laughs> and uh, after that game, 
what went through your mind? Um, well, I, I never really got a piece of the net. I got caught out half court and I remember shaking Jim Spernarkle, their, their guard's hand. And then from there, I, I just kind of wandered over to the side trying to find my parents just, you know, to go through all that, that they've done. And, um, but I got the crowd then kind of caught me. And so I never could get up to the basket to get a piece of the net. So uh, I just kind of worked my way out of the arena, but it, it was, it was great. I mean, you know, you couldn't sit down and write from, from my, from a personal standpoint, to go through having to sit out a year of playing when I'd played since I could, before I could even walk, you know, shooting baskets down the base. My dad hold me by the diapers to put it in the basket to have a, a year off completely and then come right back and be able to win a championship. You couldn't, it's, you know, like script stuff for a movie, but so to experience that and the, just to see it in reality and be a part of it, it was great. All that comes to fruitation and you're still just a <clears throat> sophomore with two years to go. I do remember this, though. One of the first persons I ran into from the crowd came up, and that's exactly what they said. Only two more to go. So, like, we were going to win three in a row, and I'm thinking, wow, we hadn't done 10 seconds after this buzzer went off, and he's already <laughs> talking about two more. <laughs> well, you, you had uh, 79. Back then, most clubs built up to a particular year or two because you always tried to have three or four key players being juniors or seniors. Right. And then you almost automatically, every team also automatically went through a rebuilding stage where you were down a year or two back right. then. You didn't have any one and dones. Right. Speak of. No. And of course suddenly the seventy nine season was the rebuilding year for Kentucky. Yeah, it, it was because uh with those seniors, uh the subs, the big men anyways, didn't get a lot of minutes unless till we got up by twenty or thirty, so they were probably not playing against the better players by then anyways. Uh, and then a few of them left. So we were even more depleted than you would think just through the graduation. And um, it, it took us a while to kind of find our niche. But we we did get on a roll late. And to this day, I mean, I know the field was smaller for the tournament. But to this this day, that was maybe one of my biggest disappointments in college is not being uh, invited to the NCAA the following year, being defended champions. I think we'd won – I don't know how many down the stretch in a row. We, we were on a roll at that time. They did count supposedly your last 10 games. We made it all the way to the finals of the uh, co- the conference tournament and we're playing by far our best basketball. Hey, well, let's talk about the conference tournament because that was the first year it had been reinstituted after it had been done away with for several years. And uh, that first year, a lot of people, at least in Kentucky, thought that they set it up as anti-Kentucky because your top two teams – got double first-round buys into the semifinals. Right. And you had to play four games in four days. Yeah. And Tennessee, which beat you in the championship, only had to play two games. Yeah, and that's ultimately, I think, what beat us. We were up 12 at halftime, and, and there's not been one thing mentioned about fatigue to that point. And we came in the locker room, and Coach Hall had us lay on the floor with our feet up on the bench, kind of like astronauts looking up to take off and to get supposedly get the blood out of our ankles or our feet or whatever, our legs. And that's really the first time we'd ever addressed fatigue. And I don't know if that just put a seed in the back of our mind or whatever, but we we came up a little bit short in regulation and ended up losing in overtime. And um, But, yeah, it, it was a great run. We beat Ole Miss. We beat Alabama in maybe one of the funnest games I think I've ever played in, 101 to 100 up and down the court, kind of like just a pickup game. Let's talk about that game a little bit because Dwight Anderson was on that team. Yeah. And ended up breaking his arm, I think, was it the Alabama game or at the end of it? Yeah, so he didn't play against LSU in the semifinals. Right. right. Um, I mean, it, yeah, and we, 
that was part of the the process, I think, from that team when when some of the players left and the seniors being gone of finding your identity. It took us a while early in the season, but then we kind of figured it out, and it got to the point where basically it was get the ball to Dwight once we get the rebound. He's so fast, he's going to take everybody down the court with him and kind of pull them with <laughs> with him, the vacuum, as he's running so fast down the court. And if he can't get to the rim and score, then the, def- yeah, the defense is going to sag in there and, and he'll kick it back out and you'll have an open shot or whatever. So. If he had not broken his arm against Bama, you think that would have been a difference against Tennessee? And, well, and if you win the tournament there, you're in the NCAA. Right, body. whoever won the tournament is automatically in could have been. It, it could have been just, you know, another body. Because it was basically, like I said, the fatigue factor that got us. We just ran out of gas. So, to have that one more body, could very well have. And we go back to the next year now, and you bring in Sam Bowie in that great class. And you've got Anderson coming back, but he doesn't make it through the year. Right. And, again, so now you're kind of starting over again. A lot of new faces, um, trying to figure out roles, trying to figure out style of play. You know, I think it took Coach Hall. I'm not sure he knew early what he wanted to do with that, you know, because not many players can do the things out perimeter that a seven-footer like Sam Bowie could do, passing the ball and and uh, scoring, shooting. He was healthy that year, which is a good thing. And then you've got some other talented players around him. And you've got an old guy like me out as a senior. Where do I put him? Do I keep him at the point? Do I turn it over to Minifield and put Macy at the two? So, yeah, it, it was a tough year, I'm sure, for Coach Hall trying to figure out everything. And we come back to the last game you play at Kentucky, and it's at Rupp in the Mideast Regional. Freddie Cowan has a very, very good game, if I remember correctly. Then, but we, you come up a little bit short. We did. We lost uh, two of the four games that year to Duke. And the first one was in that Hall of Fame game. If Bowie had made some free throws, we'd won that game <laughs> in regulation. <laughs> and then uh, came down to I got a, a look at the buzzer, the shot fake, got Vince Taylor. I understand you still got a skin off your elbow there. Yeah. <laughs> well, the referee said there was no contact. I, it sure felt like there was some, but, the, yeah, shot didn't go. And so, yeah, career was over. Disappointing. We'll continue Oscar's conversation with Kyle Macy in a second, but I want to take this time to say thank you for checking out OscarCombs.com and his coverage of Wildcats past and present. To keep up to date on conversations with Oscar Combs, just go to OscarCombs.com slash podcast. And, of course, you can subscribe to Conversations via iTunes. Hit the subscribe button on Oscar's podcast page. In our next segment, Oscar talks with Kyle about his pro career in the NBA. There are some great stories in this segment, including Kyle Macy and Michael Jordan combining for 70 points and the time when Kyle may have put the swerve on the old man. I'm Bo Robinson, and you are listening to Conversations with Oscar Combs. How you go 22nd in the first round of the NBA to the Phoenix Suns. Uh, you spend six years out there, 80 to 85? Five. And, uh, you know, it's funny how, how that worked out, too, because it's, it's a little different than nowadays, the draft. <laughs> I actually was... Um, in Colorado Springs with that Pan American team we talked about earlier where they, they process you, they bring you out there and give you all the garb and stuff. And you can practice maybe once or twice altitude. And then we were heading to Puerto Rico. Well, I was back in the dorm. It was like 11, 1130 at night. And I get a call from one of the reporters in Lexington. And they said, Hey, how do you feel about being drafted by Phoenix? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, you were picked 22nd by the <laughs> <laughs> That's, so it wasn't like, you know, they flew us to New York and had this big, but I, I was only uh, at the end of my junior year, even though I was a senior academically. Yes. So I, I, 
I had talked to Portland. Stu Inman had come into Lexington and talked to me for about 30 minutes is all. And that's the only person really in the NBA I talked to. So I think Jerry Colangelo knew that I, I was going to stay for my senior year, but uh, went ahead and took a chance. Jerry Colangelo has become a very, very major force in international basketball with the U.S. Olympic team. What kind of relationship did you have with him when you were at Phoenix? Um, it wasn't overly close. Um, but, you know, going back, I think I probably earned that pro contract from my play in that SEC tournament in 79, my junior year. Uh, he was there for that tournament. I had some pretty good games. Um, but he, he was, you know, he was all business. And that's, that's probably the biggest adjustment from my end as far as understanding. You know, when you're playing college basketball, it's about the game and it's fun and it's college. But also now you start playing professional and it turns into business. You know, they may be playing a player – not because they're trying to win the game, but they're trying to get him some minutes so other teams can see him want to make a trade. And so, you know, that, that took a while for me to, to understand. But, you know, he, he was really smart on all the business stuff. And as, as you see, and back then, the, it seemed like everything he touched turned to gold. 36 years ago, I guess, when you went there, uh, you promised me once upon a time you'd give me one of your jerseys. <laughs> and by the time you got through UK, they'd all been given out. I don't know how many girlfriends you had or what, but you did, <laughs> no. you did come through a year or two later. And you come and hand me a jersey, a Phoenix Road jersey. Yeah. yeah. And I'm looking at it. It's got number four on it. I look on the back. It's got Macy and underneath it, the outline of treats. You remember that? I remember you giving me grief about that. But you have to remember, too, back then, it's not like today where you had 15 jerseys. We had basically one home jersey and one road jersey. Well, now, as I recall it, I think I was told the story that somehow your road jersey had got misplaced on a road, and when, they had to make another jersey up for you on the flight. That's Did probably Did you forget right. to pack it, and they sold no, it? No, no, it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't something I packed. It was probably Joe Prosky, our trainer, had lost it somewhere. And uh, But uh, he, 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 for the most part, he really looked out for me. He yeah. uh, lived just down the in the complex, the condo complex where I, I lived. And uh, as college where they do your laundry for you, he was a trainer, and so we would pay him X amount a month. And he would do our practice gear and all that stuff. And he had a nice little gig going there on the side. <laughs> the Bill Cotley of the NBA. Exactly, exactly. Uh, when you were at Phoenix, did you run into Kentucky fans very often when you were on the road? Oh, you always did. Um, you know, whether when I was in college, we were playing in Alaska or Florida or the same thing in the pros. If I'd go out to shoot before a game, it seemed like every game there'd be somebody come up, hey, Kentucky class of so-and-so, or I saw this game or whatever. So, yeah, it's it it, it always kind of, you know, made you feel like you maybe a little bit of a home game. What's your biggest salary, yearly salary in the NBA? Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> I think I made three-something one year, but they, it was like 150 a year, but it was stretched over years. So, yeah. But I remember when the, the first player passed a million a year, which was Bird and Magic. That, that was a big mile marker. To think a million dollars a year now, that's like bad players are getting that. <laughs> After your five years at Phoenix, you went to Chicago for a year. Your Michael Jordan experience. Yeah, well, unfortunately that year, um, Michael hurt his ankle. You know, they brought me in to be the point guard and to be able to knock down wide open jump shots when they went to double teams. I thought that's that's a great plan. I, I'm going to love this. <laughs> uh, he got hurt early, hurt his ankle, and only played 15 games. He did come back in time. Um, for the playoffs. And we played Boston 
uh, first series, uh, first two games are up in their place, the old Boston Garden. And uh, I like to tell the story. I'm kind of proud of it. That uh, in, in the second game, I think it was of the series, it was a double overtime game, and we combined for 70 points. Now, he had 63, and I had seven, but we combined for 70. I assume you had double-digit assists that night. I should have, yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it was um, – unfortunately, it just didn't work out because, again, you know, he was hurt all year. So Stan Albeck, who was the coach at that time, just decided when Michael went out that he would just kind of – play everybody. So I would play like I'd start and play the first quarter and then play the third quarter. And then they brought in John Paxson, right? At the start of training camp, who was maybe his rookie or second year, maybe. And, uh, he played the third and then the fourth or it was close down the stretch, whoever was playing better, they'd put in. Um, and then the following year, I guess, because of the, you know, I was probably close to 30 by then. Um, Oh man. Yeah, exactly. So they stayed with Paxson who really couldn't shoot that well. Um, but, he was okay with passing to Michael and go stand in the corner. Was it was it special <laughs> that you spent that last year in NBA in your home state? No, it was really disappointing. I I, I was looking forward to it, but um, I they kept five guards that year, and Clint Richardson, who had played with the Philadelphia 76ers on a World Championship team, was a good player, and I were backup guards, and they also kept another guy, um, Russell Walker. No, Walker Russell, sorry, I always flip his name, because he was Cassie Russell's nephew or cousin or something. And Dick Harder, who was from Detroit, had that connection. Well, Dick Harder basically coached the team because Jack Ramsey at the time was, you know, winding down in his career and spent a lot of time in the pool and on his bicycle and getting doing all those triathlon stuff. And and so I don't know if Jack or Dick Harder talked Jack into keeping that fifth guard when we really didn't need it. So instead of getting extra minutes, they were trying to split that up. And you had John Long, who was shooting about 34%, and Vern Fleming, who couldn't shoot outside of six feet, starting and playing majority of the minutes. But they'd never give any of the backups an opportunity to play minutes. And so it was really disappointing. And I didn't obviously didn't have much production that year. So that's why I went overseas for three years, just because I still felt like I could play, but I just wasn't getting the opportunity to. We went to Italy. Yeah, it was great. Tell us about it. It was great. I went to uh, Bologna the first year with the Viritas team, who is, has a great tradition uh, of European basketball. And uh, uh, Cosmir, what was the guy from Brigham Young? I forgot his name now. Kosic, who who played at Brigham Young. Oh, he, yeah. he was my coach. And he was ahead of his time because all of a sudden when I came in there, they had another real guard, real good guard, Roberto uh, Brunamonti, who played on the international team and, and is – played ever since he was like 16 in the pro team and uh, so we went to a guard offense and it, it was a lot of fun I mean it was basically what you see nowadays you get a high pick a two-man game and you just read it and you play and you shoot and you drive and you kick whatever and so it was a fun year Un- unfortunately Roberto uh, hurt his foot right before the playoffs started so he didn't get to play in the playoffs so we got knocked out um, then I moved to Treviso which is just outside of Venice for two seasons with the Benetton team and got to play there and had had a good run there, and my, actually, my last game in Italy, I scored thirty one points. So you always went on a winner. Well, <laughs> tried to or scoring. I, you know, it came down. I, if I'd have had a better agent, I might have been able to play a few more years. But <laughs> so you leave Italy in ninety, and then what's the next step? Well, I got into broadcasting. I um, I went to work for the bank, Central Bank, with Luther D. You led the guard shoot. Well, Joe B was my boss, and that was the the <laughs> ongoing joke, you know, that if uh, 
he wouldn't let the guard shoot at the bank. So the, the bank got robbed. Right, right. <laughs> but uh, that was fun. You know, we were um, correspondent banking, which meant we went to all the other banks across the state and played golf with their presidents. So my golf game got a lot better. But after a few years, you know, I was looking for a little bit more. But I, I, I was fortunate enough. I remember um, I'd written Jim Host a letter and saying, because I wanted to get into that part of it and be on the UK broadcast. And I said, you know, Mr. Host, even if it's hosting cat calls before the game, I just anything I can do to get involved, I'm, I'm, I would love to do it. So he calls me in, and it's like a day before the season starts. And I'm thinking, well, that's nice. I mean, you know, this late, there's no way they're going to hire me. He's just going to be nice enough to call me in person and say, no, we're not going to do it. Well, he brings me in. I sit down, and we're, we're, he's talking. And he says, yeah, so I think that I'm going to put you on color. And, run and I didn't say a word. I was like, what did he say? <laughs> he said, yeah. So I waited. I didn't say a word. I kind of waited until he said it again. He said, yeah, I think so. I'm going to move Charlie Mack to TV and put you on color with Ralph. And and so they, I missed the trip to Hawaii that year. Give me a little transition time to settle in. And But when they came back, then he made that switch. So Charlie Mack, who was doing color, he and Ralph were kind of doing the games. Charlie Mack went to a TV, and then I stepped into that hole for the uh, color on the radio. And it was great. I mean, that those years, I mean, you're talking about the Patino years when they were getting to the championship game just about every year and possibly could have won three in a row if uh, Nazi had made some free throws as well. <laughs> Anderson, right, yeah. You are listening to Conversations with Oscar Combs. Coming up, Oscar asked Kyle the questions that you submitted on Twitter. Following Oscar on Twitter is easy. Just follow at Wildcat News. In the coming weeks, you will hear conversations with Billy Ray Lickard and Kenny Walker. As for now, let's finish up with Oscar and his conversation with Kyle Macy. Any other state other than Kentucky over the years, over 45 players from Indiana has played at University of Kentucky in basketball. And the rivalry those two schools have had, particularly from the 60s up through seven or eight years ago, is without question one of the top rivalries in all of college basketball. Looking back at it, how did you look at it then, now, future? Um. Then I, I can to this day remember I was at the state finals in Indianapolis, the old Mark Square Arena, and Kentucky was playing Indiana in that uh, regional game, with um, which would have been what seventy five. That when they went on and, and knocked off Indiana, their undefeated that was in Dayton. That was yeah, in Dayton. But I was I was sitting in Mark Square oh, Arena yes. watching the state finals. My team had been knocked out, but I was watching the game. But up on the scoreboard on the, the side panels, they they kept a running score. And for the longest time, it was 70-70. And then all of a sudden, they flashed 72-70 with an F, meaning final. And this the oxygen was taken out of the arena. Everybody's like, oh, you know, the Hoosiers had lost. And, and so, that was their only loss of the season. Yeah, yeah. Or they could have had, what, back-to-back undefeated seasons. Um, <clears throat> so a big impact, you know, understanding that rivalry between the two schools. Um, from, from when I played, yeah, I mean, there was definitely a rivalry. And having grown up in Indiana, even more so maybe in my mind than some of the other Kentucky players, uh, having played for Coach Knight in the Pan Am games and then my senior year coming back and playing against him. And then afterwards, <clears throat> you know, you're a little biased uh, growing up there. I like to think that the high school basketball is better in Indiana, but the college basketball is better in Kentucky. 
Uh, and, and you so happen you played it both of those. Right, levels. exactly. <laughs> That's why I think that way. <laughs> um, but, you know, from a, stand, a fan standpoint, there's really no reason those two schools shouldn't be playing every year. Whether egos or whatever the reasoning, you know, put it in Indianapolis, put it in Louisville, put it in Bloomington, put it in Lexington. For me, play home and home. You know, I know the NCAA now is all about neutral sites, and you want to get your team used to playing neutral sites and big arenas and those type of things. But there are certain things that just you should do, and, and it's right to do. Yeah, the, the 2012 team or whatever, I guess, lost in Bloomington in that last second shot, but that may have made them a championship team. So why not play that game? You know, it's it's okay to lose sometimes. It sometimes helps you. Well, it appears now that the North Carolina series is going to end this year because the ACC is going to 20 league games. And does that maybe put a little more emphasis on trying to get that game back if you're a Kentucky fan? I don't know. I, I just know that having been a fan going in, playing in the series, and a fan after the fact that it, it's too good a, of a rivalry to not play. And so hopefully they would work it out and not have egos get involved and just understand from the fan standpoint – and, you know, again, if I'm not a, a huge basketball fan, but I'm, if I'm a Kentucky fan and a season ticket holder, I don't like all these neutral site games. I've got to go to Brooklyn or I've got to go to, you know, Las Vegas. I want good teams to come into Rupp. I'm okay with us going to their place the following year. We'll bring in some other good teams. But if you look back at the schedules that Coach Hall played, I mean, we, we didn't play many patty cake games. And, uh, you know, so from what they're paying more and more financially to get season tickets, I, I'm a little surprised they're not a little bit more of an uproar that, hey, we want better games in row. Free throw shooting. <clears throat> it seems to be play a big role in teams winning games in March Madness and losing games in March Madness. you have a particular take? I know you were an 89% career free throw shooter at Kentucky. Uh, when you coached at Moorhead, I think you coached over there nine years. Yes. And uh, you were always in the top ten. So free throw hitting can be taught? Uh, definitely. And it's not just winning and losing games in the NCAA tournament. It's winning and losing games all year long. Um, because if you look at box scores, teams that have shot a really bad percentage free throw line are usually the team that's going to lose. If you, you can make those free throws – You've got a real good chance. And, and it can be taught, because I'll tell you one quick story to kind of exemplify that, at least in my mind. Um, one of the years I was there, we led the nation in free throw shooting percentage as a team. Now, granted, a lot of it is getting the right person to the free throw line, you know, knowing who your best free throw is, shooter is, your best scorer, and getting them the ball where they're going to get fouled. But the following year, we came out and played an exhibition game, and we were like two for 19 from the free throw line as a team. And that didn't sit very well with me because we really weren't that bad. So the following week in practice, and this, again, this was preseason, um, I made everybody shoot the free throws the exact same way. They could dribble the ball three times, set it, and had to shoot it. None of the spinning and none of the wrapping around or shaking or touching their shoulder, you know, what are, all the different things where it takes your mind off what you're trying to do. Very simple. We went over the proper form where they're setting the ball in line, extending, holding the foul through. The next game is another exhibition game, I think. I don't think we'd started the regular season yet. But we were 19 for 21. So you don't make that big of a jump if it's not able to be taught, I don't believe. The same guys were shooting the free throws. I didn't change lineups or anything. It's just a matter of understanding what you're trying to do when you get to the line and then doing that the same way each and every time. 
do you look at touching your socks? I didn't make him do that. No, I mean, I mean for yourself though. Was that a mental part yeah, of your Yeah, oh, game? that was a huge part of it. And, you know, everybody said, why does he do that? Why is he touching his socks? Well, those that time we did wear two pairs of socks. Outside sock probably was a little bit more dry. But that really wasn't the main reason. I mean, yeah, it did dry my hands off some. But it, it brought my focus down. I'm bending down to touch my socks. So now my head's down. I'm not looking up at the crowd or checking the score or looking at cheerleaders flipping or whatever they're doing. Or if I'm in Italy, people throwing coins at you when you're standing there at the free throw line. I'm, I'm starting my routine and get kind of putting myself in that trance and knowing exactly what I'm going to do and seeing the end result, what I want to accomplish. You know, there's fans that's been around a long time when they can tweet it to you. What did what was the deal with his wristbands? Yeah, I didn't wear wristbands my sophomore year. Uh, but as I continued to play in Rupp, you know, the, the game, the timeouts maybe became longer. Um Rupp Arena was a big arena, and it was cold. And I, I basically wore sweatbands to keep my wrist warm because your wrist gets cold. You don't have that feel of when you pop your wrist to shoot or those type of things. So it was basically to kind of keep a feel in my hands. And, yeah, I did wipe my brow or whatever, but it was more so to keep my wrist warm. We asked on Twitter if fans had a opportunity to ask you a question what would it be you would have picked out <laughs> six or seven here oh boy so uh the one was is did you get a lot of backlash from your friends in indiana when you came to kentucky after purdue um well when i when i went to purdue i kind of um alienated the indiana and notre dame fans and then when i left purdue to come to kentucky there, there went pretty much the rest of the state so <laughs> yeah i mean i i've caught i, I think your friends though they understood and they, they knew you well enough. But I still, oh, yeah, the trader went to Kentucky sometimes when I go up in that in different parts of the state. But for the most part, I think the way it all turned out, they understand why I didn't make that move. Here's a good one. Uh, a fan asked, who became your best friend on the team during your four years at Kentucky? Well, I think probably the guy you room with. And uh, Rick Roby, when I first came down, we had it uh, in his summer workouts and stuff. He'd take me to work to the workouts uh, we worked same place in the summer he'd drive me to work um he took me to my first weightlifting workout and picked me up the next morning and i couldn't even bend my knees from doing squats i was so sorry i can remember kind of trying to stumble down the steps to get down to get in his car to go to work um chuck verderber then i roomed with him after rick graduated the next year and then we moved into the lodge too halfway through that year where we had our own rooms so um but the one thing about that, I mean, we, everybody on the team, you're pretty close with because it's, it's basically like a big family. You spend so much time together. Is Dwight Anderson the best backcourt teammate you ever had in your <clears throat> college or pro career? Um, he was the fastest, for sure. I don't know about best. I mean, I, he played with Dennis Johnson, Walter Davis, some other great players, uh, Michael Jordan, not too bad. But but definitely the fastest as far as point A to point B, straight line running. He he could just fly, and you know that that was we built that offense that year, junior year around it. Just his ability to get down the court so quickly. Here's a really serious question comes from: Why did the late night trips to get the milkshake and donuts <laughs> were important to you when you were doing color on UK radio? <laughs> That has to be from Mike Dodson. <laughs> um, Mike and I became real good friends when I was doing the radio, the color. You know, we'd go on the road with the team travel. And 
you know, there's not a lot to do in Starkville, Mississippi, or some of the places you go to in the conference. Have you found a donut shop late at night in Starkville, though? Well, we'd find something to do because you know you go to practice and the team goes back and they're going to bed. But I, I, I was kind of a night owl. I always stayed up late, and so um, I mean, one time in Memphis, we, we drove halfway around Memphis to find get to the one Krispy Kreme place. And came. I think they were all gone by the time we got back to the hotel. But um, and so I'd, I'd wake him up late. Knock. He'd hear a little knock on the door, and he knew exactly who it was and what I was going to say. So I like my milkshakes, and you know, just something to do. So sort of, you were sort of the, the preamble to maybe Mel and Turpin and his midnight McDonald's then. <laughs> well, yeah, we. You know, Coach Hall used to bring us McDonald's pregame the night before a game at the lodge. We, we'd get like. Uh, some of them would get like two Big Macs. I don't know how they ate that much. But they'd bring you snacks in the night, like 10 o'clock, 10.30 curfew. They'd bring in the snacks at 10. Walt McCombs and Bill Kitely would come over and pass them around. You'd have a milkshake and some burgers. So that that may have started the tradition, yeah. <laughs> and this one wants to know, how good is your current tennis game? It's okay. It's not great. It, it, I enjoy playing. I love to compete. And so um, I, I, I'm on the court. You know, I teach Basically, you know, in the summer I teach at Idlehour Country Club. In the spring I coach high school tennis, boys and girls at LCA. So I'm on the court quite a bit. Um, and it, it's probably it, – it could be better, I'm sure, but I, I just like getting out there and competing. So it's it's something that it was a real good crossover. I played ever since I was young, you know, through high school and one year in college at Purdue and kind of got away from it for whatever reason. But then when I stopped playing basketball uh, – you know, it's, it's not near as it's, – it's tough on your body because it's still fast-paced and stop and go, but not like you're getting banged around when you're playing pickup games. So I don't, I don't play a lot of basketball. I, I shoot around some, but not a lot playing as much as I do playing tennis. Uh, this is off the, the Twitter list now, but how do you look back at your days uh, and your association with uh, Joby Hall? Um, it, it's, it's funny how it changes from a player standpoint. When you're playing for him – you're not always his biggest fan. You hated some of the stuff he had us doing, the 220s and the distance running and the weightlifting. But then it, after, after you go through it, you realize why he had you doing it, how much better it made you, how much mentally tougher it made you, not just physically. Um, and his take on you as a player changes, I think, too, once you graduate. Uh, and, that, you know, he if you work hard for him and do the best you can, then he, he appreciates that and – and, you know, he'll do what he can to try to help you, or you're always a good friend for him. So it, it's it's kind of now turned into, um, you know, I, I enjoy seeing him. I don't see him probably enough as I would like to because it's kind of a father figure thing now where I didn't really look at him as a father figure when I was playing <laughs> for him. But, uh, you know, he it's fun to be around because he's really relaxed more since he got out of coaching and, you know, how good of a storyteller he is and, his memory is so sharp, all the things he can remember and tell those stories. It's just fun to sit and listen to him. So it's it's been great. You guys are getting ready to celebrate your anniversary next year, your 78 championship, which will be 30 years. You're going to be hitting – 40 the, years. Or 40 years. And you're going to be hitting the big 6-0. <laughs> if you could go back to 18 years old, old again at Peru High and in Peru, Indiana, would you do anything different? Oh, I don't know. I'd, probably not. I mean, how could I complain about everything that's happened to me? I've, I've been real fortunate, real blessed, and uh, I went through some tough times, like I said, but at the same time, the, the good have far outweighed the bad. So I, I, I 
don't think I would. How would you like for people to remember you at as the years go by? I mean, we usually say this is when kids are 22 just getting out and you've been out a while now, but, uh, you know, the, there, there was a story that went around there two or three years after you left that the most, the most named baby in Kentucky was named Kyle or Macy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, people like different names. At least, you know, there was Stretch, and Kyle was kind of a different name back then. You know, Kyle Road, I guess, uh, soccer player, football player. I don't right? think many people in Kentucky knew Kyle Road. Yeah. So, and that's, <laughs> I think, where my father heard it, and that's why they named me, you know, because they liked the different name, which, from my standpoint, it, it's nice to have a different name. Where, you know, it's not like everybody's, they say the name and everybody turns around, 15 guys turn around when they call your name. When they called Kyle, I pretty much knew they were talking to me because at that time there weren't, there weren't a lot of Kyles. Um, how would I like to be remembered? Uh, you know, I, I understand that I wasn't the most talented player to ever play at Kentucky. Um, but I, I, my father taught me that, you know, if you work hard, do the best you can, and you're fundamentally sound, you can accomplish a lot of things. And so when I was out on the court, that's exactly what I tried to do. I, I never felt like I took plays off um, because I knew I wasn't the most talented. Where I could just kind of cruise by and all of a sudden turn the gear and turn it up. I had to play hard and, and did every time I, every second I was out there on the floor and tried to make the most of what I had um, through whether it was anticipation or understanding scouting reports or film work and um, just – to be the best I could. And, and like I said, I love to compete. And that's one thing I, I, I take pride in the, my ability. I was, I may not have been the most talented, but I'd compete and I'd battle right at the end. You were here four years and then you were gone 10 years from 80 to 90. You come back and coach it at Moorhead and then you settle in and made this your home. Uh, yeah. You know, I always, this kind of was home all along. Once I came to school here, even when I was playing professional, I'd come back here in the summer, you know, Nolan Barger, a local high school coach before he retired, uh, and I ran a camp, and he he was great because he was so organized. And I'm sure at times he probably thought, oh, here comes Macy just blowing into town and doing <laughs> camp, where he did all the sign-ups and everything, and he and his wife. So that was a great relationship. We did that for 27 years. And so in the off-seasons, I'd always come back and be around basketball camps. And obviously there's some good pickup games around campus before I leave and go play. So. Thanks, Kyle. Thank you.